0: Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind, commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to March the 22nd, 2016, episode 1749. This is actually an episode that's just one back from the episode we did in the last rewind, but it wasn't really planned that way. Uh, there's a feature on the, uh, website if you go look at it, and, uh, Right near the top of the stack on the sidebar It says listen to a random episode If you click it, it might actually not pull up an episode It just pulls up a random post on the blog With a good part of them being episodes What I did today is I just kept clicking that Until I found one that I thought would work as a rewind And uh, it's called Financial Preparedness for the Modern Financial Preparedness the Modern Survivalist Way And again, this is from 2016 So we're going back, what, seven years here A little bit more than seven years Because we're going back March Like seven and a half years When I saw this, I thought this would be perfect, and you know I don't remember everything, uh, contrary to what I think people believe about. I don't remember everything about everything, like every episode I did and every word I said, but I thought, like this is probably spot on, so I looked at the notes, and I'm like, yeah, this is perfect, and here's why it's perfect. When COVID hit, I had people that complained that I didn't teach enough hardcore survival so they weren't ready, and I would submit to you that this show that was done, what, five years before COVID hit, if you had taken just this show and done just what's in this show and added to it a little bit of food preparedness, which we talked about plenty, you would be better off today than had you not. And you, and this was exactly the preparedness mindset that was necessary for what we've gone through when COVID hit and what we continue to go through since this whole mess was put on turbocharge. Because the biggest problems that we have have been economic. Now, sure, the government doled out free money that they stole, but in the end, we still had a lot of economic problems. And then right now, you know, all the gravy train money's gone, but the cost associated with goods and services that went up due to pumping the gravy train are still there. And if you had done the things that are in this episode, like increase your economic IQ, save money, reduce expenses. Create additional income. Save more money in different forms. Become a landowner on some level. Put some money into silver and gold. Put some money into Bitcoin. On an ongoing basis, a little each month or quarter at least. Become a producer of food. Plant trees. Buy the best you can afford once versus buying cheap twice or three times. Become highly skilled at fixing your own problems. See opportunity everywhere because it is everywhere. Become a great cook. Invest in what you understand only when it makes sense. Get out of the way of telegraph punches and pay off all of your debt with the exception of like a mortgage as soon as possible. You'd be better off today. A lot better off. And these are core principles that we've taught now for 15 years. So I thought this would be a good show for a Rewind. I also thought today, as my voice is a little bit better... It'd be a good day to tell you what's been going on, because I'm starting to get the emails that I hope it's nothing too severe or whatever. All right. Nobody, like, lose their shit one way or the other with this. With it's not real, it doesn't exist, or, oh, my God, I hope you don't die. I'm fine. But what we have is COVID. Uh, and I'm 99% on that. And I know there's a whole group of people like, doesn't even exist. It's fake. Okay, go away. I don't have, I have no time for you people when I'm dealing with something like this. Um, I don't, this is why we think it's COVID one. We had some of the rapid test kits still lay around. We took one Well, my wife took one and it was positive Two. this did come from the kids. Uh, the kids were sick last week. Then a week later, we're sick. My daughter-in-law works at some, a lot of you don't know this works at a medical office. She's exposed to this crap constantly her and my son have had it like two or three times we had it once so we've not gotten it every time that they've been exposed to it um i think it's how long ago we were sick with it and that it's probably mutated that's why vaccines don't work worth a shit for the damn thing we're fine i mean literally we're fine neither one of us are worried about anything day in day out we have not felt that bad at any one given time but when we when I get back, and, and tomorrow there will be an expert council show because I can get that done. But when I get back, we're gonna talk about this a little bit more. We're gonna do an episode on it. Um modern COVID preparedness from a different mindset, in that what I realize here is that the threat is not, you know, dying on a respirator or a ventilator or whatever. Like it, it's so overblown. Most of the people end up in that situation, something else would have put them there if it had not been this. However, it does take you out for about a week of your life. And here's what I mean by that. It's not that you can't function. It's that you can't function optimally at all. It's more than just like the flu where you have a headache or you feel nauseous or whatever. There's a mental focus that's lost in this where doing things that I consider mundane and routine tasks take me three times as long and I still make mistakes. And that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is just like, it, it it has the typical things like a flu or a cold. Yesterday, I was going to do the interview. I was all ready to do it. I got all the prep work done. Ten minutes before I was supposed to get on the horn with the guy and do it. And I was really looking forward to it. I'm sitting in my office. had the air conditioner on 66 degrees for an hour before I walked in here. My, my I have a space unit in my office in addition to central air. So, I mean, it's like a refrigerator in here. I sit down, and I look like I just ran like three miles in the heat. I am blowing sweat. I'm like I I can't. I can't do this. I'm not going to do a good job for the guy first of all. I can't function. But I also look like a just a mess. So, we decide to reschedule the interview. I put out the cancel notice. I go out and sit on the couch. And in 5 minutes the sweat stops. I'm like I could have done this. I pick up my laptop and try to do a little bit of work. I'm looking at words and not and knowing what they say but not being able to process them <laughs> is one way, I guess, to explain it. Like, I can do it, but I can't do it well. And so I think that just whether it's COVID or not needs to become part of our preparedness mindset that things will go wrong that will take you out of work temporarily, that in and of themselves aren't that severe. And this happens all the time anyway with different illnesses, diseases, injuries, etc. It's, it's, it's a constant human condition. And a good prepper should be prepared for it. But if you know that this is one of the things, you can be better prepared. So here's an example of one of the things I think I need to do. I think I need to record about three or four rewind episodes. Okay? That are timeless, but not published. So that when something like this happens, I can just grab them instead of... Because it still takes work to create an episode like this, new content, etc., And so I need a few in the bank. And you could expand on that to, well, what could you do with your job, your work, etc.? You know, a lot of people, you have regular jobs. The company's big enough. If you're not there, it doesn't implode. You have sick days. Okay, great. You have a plan. What about everybody else? If you're a contractor and you're only paid when you work, you don't have any sick days. Be one example. You're a self-employed contractor. You only work for yourself. Like, I knew a guy that did that. He was a drywall guy. Once in a while, he'd have a helper with him kind of day work helper. But otherwise, either work and get paid or you don't. And I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't do drywalling in the condition I'm in right now. And I'm not a guy that's a wuss when it comes to being sick. I don't get man flu where like, you know, a woman, the superhuman woman, like the mythology around that, the woman is never down. She keeps working, does all the dishes, goes to work when she's sick. That bullshit. But there are men who are kind of really, they overplay it when they're sick. I think it's because they're always doing everything And so to have a point in time where somebody takes care of them is a big deal. So maybe they overplayed a little bit. I'm not that guy. I've always been the guy. I will get out and physically work through the pain, work through illness. I actually think in most instances it causes quicker recovery by not laying down and just accepting it. But I'm telling you, the brain fog is unbelievable. And uh, again, this is our second time. This is worse than the first time. But... It's been nasal congestion. It's been typical stuff, plus the brain fog. But, I mean, shivering, then sweating, then shivering, and stuff like that. And it just makes it, where it's been very difficult, to produce content for you guys. And I apologize for that. We will be back tomorrow again with an expert council show. I did want to go, you know, just kind of let you guys know what's going on. And, uh, again, don't worry about me. It's nothing serious or whatever. It's not super serial, Um We should both be non-contagious today, tomorrow, something like that. We can go back about our lives. And uh, just know that, like, it's not going to get you, but it is a thing. And we should not deny that it's a thing. And at the same time, not hyperventilate and worry about it. Because it's it's a thing like every other thing in life. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back to uh, March twenty-second, 2016. Originally episode 1749, Financial Preparedness, uh, The Modern Survivalist Way. Um, Part of it is I've always tried to keep the show fresh and new. And very little of my philosophy on monetary uh, investments, on managing economics, on debt, which you cannot discuss in my world. You cannot discuss investing, saving, protecting wealth without discussing debt. A lot of it hasn't changed very much. I might present it a little bit differently, but that's one of the reasons maybe you guys haven't heard the same topics over and over again that maybe you used to is because I don't want to just rehash it. So I'm trying to take a new approach with this today to keep it fresh in in your minds. But let's talk about why, first of all, this topic is so important to this community and all prepper communities. I, I personally believe that it is the number one issue That pushes people from a completely unprepared lifestyle to a feeling that they need to prepare. Other than the little improvements people make due to natural disasters. So I think a lot of people at least become basically home prepared because they go through a storm and they go without power for three days. And like this sucks. And they get... You know, some kind of backup heater and some flashlights and batteries and candles and take it a little more seriously after they go through one. But that doesn't mean they really radically alter their philosophy or their lifestyle. Where when I'm talking about people that do that, people that say, okay, I can't keep living like a sheep anymore. And I've got to go take responsibility for myself. I've got to get control. And some start out very pragmatic and practical and some start off in a freak out mode. But the number one commonality that brings people totally across. Into prepping into becoming a modern survivalist is economics, and I would bet you that if i if I pulled this audience to what was your primary uh, issue if you had to roll it down to a single word you know uh, or a, a single concept you know uh, increasing government uh, natural disasters uh, you know whatever that if I put economic concerns, it would be the, it would be the number one answer not not the only answer, but I, I would bet that it would be half. And then everybody else would be split up amongst the other half. So it is something that has a, a real concern. And the reason it does is because it actually touches on everything. So let's say if, you're, if your primary concern were pandemic, if you have a pandemic, you're going to have a financial crisis anyway. And if you had a bad enough financial crisis, you could have sanitation conditions, conditions drop to the point where you'd have a pandemic. You almost can't think of a a national or global level crisis that's not going to have a massive impact on economics. And then every single day, people have to pay the bills. Every single day, people have to make sure they have food on the table. So food is a concern, but the primary means by which we acquire our food is money. Okay, And almost every person at some point in their life loses a job that they didn't really think they were going to lose whether it's because a company was bought out, remember, or because it was layoffs or because you just weren't performing well or the company made a decision to eliminate your position um, or you you got ill and even though you had some level of help with, you know, that eventually you just weren't able to fulfill your duties anymore. I mean, there's all types of reasons people lose jobs other than just you suck and got fired. And most people at some point in their life either experience this or someone very close to them does, and generally speaking, it's so common that if two people are married, it's almost inevitable that one person will lose a job, and then you, you have this financial worry, this financial concern. Most Americans, the majority of Americans today, live truly paycheck to paycheck, and that, that actually spans a lot of income levels. Like It's not just people making minimum wage to do that. People in this country have a tendency to move themselves into a position that the more they get, the more they spend. And it's funny, too, to watch people that actually lived sort of okay, but spent every dollar they made and saved almost nothing, and five years later, their income's almost double, but they're in the same position. So Americans fundamentally don't know how to manage money. And the advice that we're given is not horrible, but it's not good. You know, 10% into mutual funds and all that stuff, and we'll get into that in a minute. So we have bad advice... Not horrible, but bad advice. And we have horrible practice. So we give people bad advice, but they're even horrible at implementing the bad advice to the best level possible. And and this creates panic when people really realize what's going on because they realize the nation is just as shitty at managing its money. The government is just as shitty as managing its money as most average Americans are. And when people look at things like over $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities. They know that at some point, something has to happen. And generally speaking, the panic comes because they feel, well, that giant crash that they've always heard about has to be the result. And as I said yesterday, it doesn't necessarily have to be the result, but there has to be some kind of a reckoning in all of this. At some point, you cannot just continue a a process that continuously expands debt and continuously expands obligations that you know you won't have the money to meet without some sort of a consequence eventually occurring. And when that consequence hits something as large as an economy, and confidence is wounded even by a few percentage points, you end up with, at minimum, a major recession. And at some point, we end up with a recession that becomes a depression, and at that point, the only solution is to do something with the monetary supply itself. And you can bet that people are going to get hurt. And people have different levels of understanding about this reality. Some don't get what I said at all and just think, oh, it's going to be catastrophe. He doesn't know what he's going to talk about. It's going to be like a zombie apocalypse, right? And then some people think, well, it won't be quite as bad. But the reality is, I don't know what it'll be, but I know that that there is some level of a reckoning that we will have to deal with. And most people, no matter how buried their head is in the sand, if they pull it up for a half a second and look at it, you just go to usdebtclock.org and look at it and start reading and comprehending the numbers, you know this cannot continue. It cannot. That there has to be a point. And that's what leads us to either we're going to get pragmatic about what we're doing or we're going to get panicky about what we're doing. And what I want to do today is I want to make you pragmatic and practical. And just take panic and just put it on the shelf. If you, if you want to still freak the hell out, okay, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll put your panic on the shelf for the next hour, when I'm done, if you still want to panic, you can take it right back off, put it back inside of yourself, and panic your ass off. But will you, will you please give me this opportunity to make this work better for you? And there's been some people panicking for the last 20 years, and they knew it was just tomorrow that the dollar would collapse And what have they gotten out of those 20 years, and how much does it cost them? Think about that. But where I want to start with you at is two things you may have never really been told before that are what I call the number one and number two wealth killers in the world. The number one things that prevent people from actually building or preserving actual wealth and uh, from living a lifestyle that is what I consider wealthy, even if you don't have high income or a lot of capital. I believe that we can live very, very wealthy lifestyles without quite a lot of money if we define wealth as having all of our needs met, being at peace, being happy, having time to spend with our families, etc. And that's not, you don't need money. That's, you don't need as much money as you think you do, but I'll take all the surplus money that I can acquire uh, so that I can do good things with it and increase my resiliency if something goes wrong, okay? And that's the big thing I want to do is help you increase resiliency today as well. So the number one wealth killer is what I call poverty consciousness. And I see it all the time right in this audience. And I'll I'll, I'll tell you that much like being the son of a drug addict and having to, to deal with growing up and saying, I don't want this for myself, but yet knowing that it was tempting, that you had a genetic predisposition for drug use, right, Um, which is how I grew up. I grew up with a mother who was a drug addict, and always was afraid of drugs uh, getting into my life and ruining my life because I saw what it did to her, and I saw what it did to our family. Um, But I also grew up where the entire family lived in a world of poverty consciousness. My father describes the area that I grew up as a teenager in as his words, and I quote, a white man's ghetto. Uh, Because it's a place where there's almost no people of color whatsoever. Almost everybody's a white person, but yet it's a ghetto, in many ways, and it's not, you know, Eight Mile Detroit ghetto. And I think we have a, a wrong understanding of like what a modern ghetto is. It's just a place where people do the best they can to get by, but people feel like that where they are is the is the the furthest they're going to be. That there's there's no chance to become more. They've given up. That's that's really what it's about. Like, I'm just going to make the best with what I have, and I've given up. And and I can't describe parts of central Pennsylvania in the coal region better than that. And to be fair, I haven't really lived there in 30 years. So I don't know what it's like today, but my instinct based on feedback is it's not much different. And that meant I grew up with this, this thing that unlike a drug, you couldn't just not take it, it was actually infused in me constantly. When I when I went back to Pennsylvania and went to visit my father after it had been almost 15 years of being down here, I sat in a little donut shop and had a donut and a coffee. And it was a place that I remembered, so I wanted to kind of just go there. And I just sat and I just listened to the people around me. And I must have heard the word cheaper a 100 times in 15 minutes oh, if you want to buy that, go here. Like It was the the only thing anybody even thought of. Where could you get things the cheapest? And it was such a foreign thing to me that, that that would be the topic of discussion for multiple people sitting all around you at the same time, discussing 20 different things, but that was the only concern. How could you do it the cheapest? Now, I'm all for saving money, and I'm all for spending less when you can and more when you should, but... It's not like the number one thing I wake up thinking about, how do I do this cheaper? But it's that part of that poverty consciousness. And when I put this out, some of the comments on Facebook were things like, I have no money to save or to buy guns, so I'd prefer a show on gardening for food. I understand the sentiment, and that's at least a proactive approach to it. But when you start, and, and the person called himself poor, if you start calling yourself poor... You will ensure that you stay poor for the rest of your life. And even if I give you money, you will figure out how to become poor again. So you have to break the poverty consciousness. The number two wealth killer is what I call consumer age thinking, which seems like the polar opposite. Okay? I'm going to go out and buy whatever I want today, whether it's with a credit card or with money. You know, I just got paid and I wanted this widget for a long time and I have extra money this month, so I'm going to go ahead and buy the widget now and have it. And it's the person that you look at that's living, quote unquote, the American dream. Okay? They're married. They have two kids. They have a picket fence. They have a nice house that they really can't afford, but somehow they manage to. Two brand new cars in the driveway. Guy's a member of the country club. Ladies in the uh, PTA. She's always nice dressed. He's always nice dressed. Activities, kids are in everything. This is the consumer age thinking. I want my kids to have more than I had. And I know people that I'm close to, that I'm personally friends with and family with, that keep saying this, and and I, I don't say anything to them directly, but I want to hit them. Because they act like their childhoods were so deprived... And they have no idea what it actually is like to be deprived as a child. To actually be poor as a child. Because I know how they grew up. And they didn't have everything people have today. But it was also because it was 35, 40, 50 years ago. And there was just less stuff. They had pretty good lives. But they feel like since they see all this glitz around them today. That their kids should have it all. And they didn't. It's good for your kids not to have everything they want. It's good for you not to have everything you want. Especially immediately, instant gratification. But we live in an age where it's so easy. There's payment plans and there's credit cards and there's you know get it now and pay for it next month and, and all these things and and it's, and it's it, it, everything's been driven to such cheap costs that we feel like we can get away with. We have people eating top ramen so they can have you know the newest iPhone because it's consumer driven mentality. Or you're killing your body uh, so you have a thing then by the way, in a couple of years, will be considered outdated and worthless. And you would think so. Poverty consciousness and consumer age thinking are opposites. They're actually twins. Because it's a poverty consciousness, a belief that I'm poor, but I can live like I'm not, that creates a consumer age thinking. Check for those two things at all times in your life. You're not poor, unless you choose to be. I don't care how much money you have or you don't have. Poverty is a belief. Because there are opportunities literally everywhere to change your income quotient. But if you change your income quotient without your, your your mental understanding of what it is to be wealthy, you'll always be poor. And you'll always see yourself as poor. I know people that are making more money now than they ever made any time in their lives. They're making more money than their parents ever made. And they still refer to themselves with words that are poor words. I'm broke. They're not broke. They're overextended into debt. They have an unbalanced life. They're not poor. They make more money than some. I know people that make more money. They're top 2% earners in this country, which puts you in like the top quarter percent in the world. And they see themselves as poor. So you've got to fight those. Um, and then before we move on, I want to actually talk about something. I've been wondering when I'm going to put this on the show. I had an epiphany res- recently about the game of Monopoly. I, I don't like games, especially board games. I don't play them. I kind of like trivia games and stuff like that. If I don't have to do anything except answer questions, because that kind of fits into my strength, I guess. But mostly games bore me. So I never really played Monopoly as a kid, but I played it you know, here and there because everybody did, especially at that time. And uh, my, my wife likes board games, and she got a bunch of games for, to play with our grandson, Braylon. And the one game they have is Monopoly Jr., And just watching them play Monopoly Jr., a very simplified version of it, made me realize why most people are terrible at Monopoly. And how we actually start acting like we're playing Monopoly as adults and how it leads to to making ourselves broke. Because the game and reality are different because you're not in the club where Monopoly works. When you take a child and teach them to play Monopoly or even a young adult or someone that's never played the game before and they land on something and they only have so much money in their hand and they can buy this property and it's a crappy property or an expensive property, their immediate tendency is not to spend my money yet to retain my money. To win the game of Monopoly, you have to spend all your money as fast as possible and then mortgage the properties that you've bought and then put put build houses and hotels and you have to basically spend and borrow faster than everybody else in the game and that's the only way to succeed okay and intrinsically this doesn't make sense when you're handling money in the real world so people approach the game of monopoly like they would in the real world. I have to actually pick and choose my investments. But the reality is in the game of Monopoly, there's only so many players, the board's only so big, there's only so many properties, and whoever owns the most in the end is going to win. By the way, you can mortgage the property with no real consequence to the debt. This is exactly how the the wealthy play their game. Well, you're not in that club, so you can't play life like that. If you play Monopoly, you spend every dollar you can as fast as you can, you build as fast as you can, you leverage, you get... Oh, and by the way, have you ever noticed that you can always end up going to jail in the game of Monopoly, and then you just pay a couple hundred bucks to get out? Do you know what that infers? Everybody playing the game is constantly breaking the law, and there's a small consequence to it, and you can just get out of jail. And by the way, you have a lot of friends there because you're constantly visiting the place. Just something to think about. But... That's the lesson of the game, Monopoly, and, and, and this is what happens. Americans, people in the first world, frankly, know this intrinsically. Save your money, don't extend yourself in debt. But by the time we grow up, Monopoly thinking takes over our lives, and we live that consumer-age thinking, that, and we still have a poverty consciousness. That's why we end up broke. And the the biggest erosion into any progress we do make is debt, and I've said this many times, but I'll, I'll say it again. Debt's cancerous. Debt is cancer. It's so much like cancer that it's scary. And, and here's what I mean. If you think that's an overstatement, when I finish this little story, you will, for the rest of your life, if you've never heard of it before, also see debt as cancer. And that's my goal. And by the time you're done hearing this, you know debt is cancer. So let's take a look at two men, Tom and Frank. Tom is a consummate American success story that believes that you're not, you're not shit in America unless you owe money. So, Tom goes to his college. He gets student loans. He gets a good paying job. He gets his job. He gets credit cards, builds his credit, um, finances his life, finds a wife, buys a house. Two years later, he sells and moves to a bigger house. He's the guy that we just talked about with the country club membership. His two kids are in every activity under the sun. He wants to give them everything he didn't have, and he has this bullshit, screwed-up view of his childhood that wasn't nearly as bad as he thinks it was today, but he doesn't want his kids to go through it. Mom's kind of the same way. She's taking the same path. She has huge student loan debt. She's got her own credit cards. She has a good-paying job, but all their money disappears every month. Yet they live in this beautiful house. They drive really nice cars, a couple big SUVs, because everybody knows you have to have a $40,000 SUV to haul your two kids to a soccer game. How the hell else would you get a kid to a soccer game without a $40,000 SUV? You've got to have it. So they do this. And let's say at about the age of 35 to 40, we look at them and they look superly financially healthy. They're probably even contributing to a 401K in their work they think is going to save their bacon in the end and then Frank Frank works his way through college or he takes some loans but he keeps the minimal pays as much as he can does two years of community college first or he goes to trade school or he does whatever he has to to get himself into a position where he can have gainful employment or start a business and he makes an income that's maybe a little bit less than, than Tom does he finds a wife that kind of is the same way, and they go along, they have their kids, they pay as they go, they limit like how many of these activities these kids are in that cost money. They make them pick and choose, not just give them everything they want. They drive vehicles that maybe are a few years older, or they lease inexpensive but high-resale value vehicles to keep money in their pocket and be able to have options at the end of it. Um, they live a pretty good life, but maybe they live a few blocks away. From, from where Tom lives, in a little less affluent neighborhood, their cars are a bit older, uh, their their clothes aren't always brand new, and if you look at the two of them side by side, and you ask the average person who's healthier, they they would say that Tom's family is way healthier than Fred. Look at what they have. Look at their manicured lawn that's taken care of twice a week by True Green Kemlon or whatever, and And Frank's like a dumbass out there cutting his own grass on Saturdays and making his kid clean the pool. This is craziness. Okay. Ten more years go by. We're now at, instead of 35, we're at 45. Maybe another ten years go by. 55. Now we've got 20 years of this lifestyle. We're ten years away from the retirement age people shoot for 65. At this point... Frank's house has long been paid for his kids have followed his own path, so he's not in debt trying to get them through, and they're not coming home to him you know and and having to provide for them like they're still young children. They're off building a life they followed his example He has almost no debt whatsoever, and any money he's been saving at that point then is literally his money it's completely his so even though Tom's been chunking money in that 401k, they're 10 years away from retirement, and they have a big chunk of money in the 401k, but most of it has you know, gotten them a home in the world of paying off debt. They may still have their freaking student loan payments around at this point, for all we know, but assuming that's gone, it sucks so much of their life early on, and they've replaced it with other debt as they paid it off because they felt like they've earned it. They've probably moved up in-house yet again. They have a huge mortgage payment. They have all this credit card debt. Their kids are not thriving because the kids are following their example. They're probably failing the launch and and, and needing money and support. They've got an aging uh, parents that they're probably having to put out for. And they sit down one day and they do the numbers and they put their hands in their face and they have the come to Jesus moment and they realize that their life is totally screwed. Because the cancer was metastasizing when they looked healthy. Just like the person that has cancer looks really healthy today, but give the cancer long enough to go unabated, it destroys them from the inside. And now you can see the damage. This is what debt does to Americans. And then that 10 years, they will be retired and have silver hair and rolled up pants and walking down the beach. The only way they're actually going to get there, and I've seen people do this too, is to put themselves into bankruptcy while sheltering what they can of their retirement. And I've seen it done. And that's why it's cancer. And that's why it absolutely destroys you, and it's why you have to get rid of it. There is a place for debt. Um, there's two places I actually see the value in debt one is real estate and the other in our modern age is with smart purchasing of vehicles especially if you need a vehicle for your your business your job what have you but it has to be done smartly and i won't go deep into that today but if it's not one of those two i see no place for it and i'll even talk today a little bit about building some credit so you can buy a house uh and how to use a credit card smartly as a part of that but those are the only places that debt really makes sense and it's still playing with a cobra Okay, so when you're going to play with a Cobra, you have to be as diligent as you can to keep from getting bit because one bite could mean death. And I also want to kind of point out something that I get a lot when I talk about this. People say I want specifics. And when you say specifics, I give all kinds of specifics. But no, they're not good enough specifics. What people want me to say is go put your money right now in XYZ stock. Uh, blank metals and X commodities, okay, and put and this is the allocation and do that. Hold it for six months and then I'm not going to do that because even if I know the the places that there's going to be gains and losses, and I can only do that so well. But even if I knew 100%, your situation. And your needs and your risk tolerances and what you can afford to actually do are different than everybody else's on planet Earth. Decisions like that need to be made at the individual level. And this is why saving is more important than investing for most people. If you don't have twice your annual income in savings, then your investment probably won't be that critical to your success yet. Assuming that you're putting a lot of money away, now that doesn't mean that I'm totally opposed to 401ks. Though I don't like them in general, at least it's something. And there's usually some option in there, like a, a U.S. government bond fund, or some of them still have cash options, where at least that money goes there and it exists, right? And you could save inside it. You don't have to really risk to invest inside it. But for for especially early on in your life, if you're 20 something. You could probably make more money delivering pizzas three nights a week and putting it away than whatever you have saved would ever make you an investment. And that's guaranteed money. It's guaranteed money. Yes, it's work. It takes work. I'm sorry. That's how it works. But what most of us need to be doing is saving a hell of a lot more. Because... I have people asking me, well, how do I invest? And you say, well, how much do you have to invest? And they say $5,000. And you say, okay, that's how much you have in your investment you know, like little niche. How much cash do you have? And they're like, well, you know, $7,000. Okay, wait a minute. How much of that 7000 like is that, is that really two? And you find, out, yeah, they have $2,000 they're keeping in cash reserve, and they want to take $5,000 and invest it. You don't need to do shit. You don't need to do anything. Don't even think about it. And here's why. You're putting the little money you have at risk, this this $5,000 at risk, where if you get a 10% return on it in this year, which is pretty damn good and and a lot harder to do than it used to be, you get $500. And in return for $500, you've put the the $5,000 at risk, possibly extreme risk, possibly... The best you might do is make $500, but you could if you have a major market correction like we've seen in recent times, that 5,000 could become 2500. So imagine you go to play a game in a casino that works like this. You put your money down and the best you can do is a 10% gain, but the worst you can do is a 50% loss. How many times do you want to play that game? So when you build enough wealth to actually approach investing with true discipline, with true diversity, and with true intelligence, then a 10% return can be significant enough to be worth the risk and the time. Because to figure out how to safely invest with reliable returns, when all you can get out of doing that is 500 bucks, again, you can probably make two or $300 a week delivering pizzas or tending bar. And I'm not saying that's the way that you should do it, but that's the way you have to think about it. Rather than investing, how can I make more money? What kind of small business, what kind of part-time job, things like that, and I'll leave that for more later. But save, 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 save. And at this point, let's go ahead and pause and hear from our sponsors of the day, and I'll come back and uh, we'll keep uh, working through this. And I have my rules for becoming financially resilient and a little bit of other stuff as soon as we're back. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time. When we vetted them for the sponsorship program, we checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, You pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. If you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. People could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or member support brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section. Of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, hey Jack, we love what you're doing, we want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show, and I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to... Just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the member support brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven Years. Uh, that's why I call them the original survival podcast sponsor because they were first and they've been loyal as anything could ever be seven years in the podcasting world. Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping. Uh, from long-term storage foods, the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So, A shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. And again, please let me know if you prefer having the commercials kind of like as a regular radio spot you know, in the middle of the show and getting into the topic a little bit faster. I'm going to try to play with some other things with the intro segment to kind of disperse stuff a little bit, as long as I don't make the show too disruptive. Anyway, so, so coming back to it, we've talked about savings now. Let's talk about, before we go into my rules, the lessons of alternative energy and how that applies to investing. So you might think those are very divorced from each other, but they're really not. So... When someone says I want to put solar panels on my house or put up a windmill or something like that because I want to save money on my energy, there's there's really two pieces of advice to, to follow first. First, increase your efficiency, and second, reduce your losses. So increasing our efficiency would be, well, have you changed all your light bulbs to LEDs? They last like 20 years and draw a a, a tiny, infinitesimal piece of the power. And that's new technology, guys. When I started this show, CFLs were all the rage, compact fluorescents. And I was very down on them, and people got at me like, don't you know how much? I'm like, they have mercury, they're a toxic stream, they don't last really that long, they flicker. If you use them in a place where you turn them on and off, they actually cost more, not less. They just don't work that great. LED is the technology to move forward with, it'll be here soon. And now it is. Now, it's still kind of expensive, especially with certain lights, but it's an investment. It's an investment, and it it reduces the cost of energy. So it's one example of where we can make a change, or a more efficient water heater, right? Or maybe go to on-demand. That doesn't work for everybody, by the way, but if it does, for some people, it's much better to go with on-demand. So we, we improve the efficiency of everything that we're drawing energy from. And we at least do things like this. Okay, I have a refrigerator. It still works. It's not justified to go out and buy a new refrigerator just to get a more energy-efficient one. But when the time comes, let's do that. And then we reduce our losses. There's a big gap around your door. Put some weather stripping in there. That costs a couple bucks. It could save you you know, tens of dollars a month at certain times of the year or more. When it comes time to put new windows in, let's put more efficient windows in. Even things like using the right draperies and and, and blinds in certain parts of the house at certain times can reduce the, 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 the leakage. So when we approach investing and saving and financial resiliency, we should do it the same way. We increase our efficiency, which means find ways to increase the amount of money coming in, and we reduce our losses to cut the amount of money that's going out. None of that—that's like so. Investing then becomes the solar panels, right, Uh, or the battery backup systems, and all these other things. We should we should tighten up the system first, because then anything we do is an investor's magnified. You've probably never heard that explained to you, and no financial liar, I mean advisor, will ever do that. They'll never teach you that in school. They'll never talk to you about that because it doesn't fit the model of the big club that you're not in that sets the agenda for all these things. So my rules for becoming financially resilient, notice I didn't even say independent here. That's up to you and how hard you want to work and what independent means to you. Many of you could be financially independent in five years. You would just have to live at a level you don't want to live at. So however much you want, you have to develop enough income that's passive or lifestyle-based income to, to accommodate that. I could be financially independent tomorrow morning and never do another podcast. But I sure couldn't live the way I do now. And I want to live the way I do now. I absolutely want to live the way I do now. And the beauty is that my income is lifestyle dependent. I actually love doing this show. I love doing this show so much. If I won $100 million in a lottery, I'd probably take a couple of months off, to be honest. I'd come back and keep doing this show. I'd probably set it up where it'd be a lot easier to do. But I would keep doing it because I love teaching. I love helping people. I love reaching so many people every day that can do more because of what I do. But if I want to continue to have the lifestyle level that I have, then I have to continue creating a certain amount of income. If I want to go to passive income right now, I'd have to drastically decrease my lifestyle. I could probably pay the house off in a couple of years and have no debt at all because that's only the only debt we have. And probably live in the house about the way we do. But, you know, if I wanted to take a couple trips a year like I do now, I'd have to think a little more about it. And also, independent financial stability is, is twofold. There's the complete, no matter what I do, I can live at least this well. And that's the big takeaway from this. You have to decide what that is and then shoot higher than that so you have resiliency in case something goes wrong. But the first rule is increase your economic IQ. I think it's the number one thing people can do because it will help them in business, it will help them in investing, it will help them in monetary psychology, it will help you in every way you can imagine. And I have a simple way for you to do it: get a list of financial terms, it's just as big a list as you can find, and every day Google one and spend ten minutes learning about it, and and commit to at least knowing a basic definition of what it is. Okay. A basic definition of what it is. And that would be things like, what does it mean when somebody says shorting a stock? What does it mean when somebody says, well, it's a naked short versus a covered short? A put or a call, naked and you know covered. What, what are those things? What is an interest rate, really? What does it mean? What is What is an APR on an interest rate versus the straight interest rate? What is an adjustable rate mortgage? What's good about it? What's bad about it? Where does it make sense? Where doesn't it make sense? What does amateurization mean? Many of you know a lot of these, but keep going. You'll find stuff you don't and learn a little bit more. And how does it impact things? What is the basic law of supply and demand? Not just what they taught you in like seventh grade, some you know economics 101 BS that really didn't teach you anything. What is supply and demand and why is it so, so largely misunderstood? Just one little thing, 10 minutes a day, for a year. For a year. That's 365 days. A more if you want to. But it will change how you think about money, because you'll actually understand it. And I know that seems like, well, but I want specifics. So I want to know where to invest my money. I can't tell you where to invest your money, and if I could, I wouldn't. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not licensed to give that advice. I'm not going to jail so you can feel good. I will tell you when to get the hell out of the way. And I still think you need to be out of the way right now. okay? But I won't tell you specifically what to do, because again, I can't. And if I, w- if I could, I wouldn't, because you need to learn and empower yourself to make these decisions. And you'll see more about that as we go on. And the next one is, we already said it, but I'm going to say it again. Save money, determine what you could save, then do a bit more than that. Sit down and say to yourself, if we really tried, we could put away, let's say, $150 a month. Let's say that's all you can do right now. Okay, fine. Because you, you, you're going to be uncomfortable when you do this the first time. Okay, and then you're going to say, we're going to make sure we put $150 a month in a savings account, and whether it's throwing pennies in a jar, whether it's picking up a couple soda cans, for God's sakes, and sell it, whatever it is. Whether it's, uh, I don't really need to buy this this month, but I have the money for it, I'm going to put that in, do a bit more. Stretch yourself with your savings. And it'll start to get fun. It'll start to become a challenge, like a game. Like a video game where you're trying to get to the next level. And all of a sudden it'll be like, hey, we did 200 bucks last month. I thought we could only do 150 but we did 200 I bet we could do 225 this month. And you, you, you can sit down and work a budget and swear to God that you can't do it. But you will find a way to do it. Next, start figuring out ways to reduce expenses in the tiniest ways. But whenever you do it, allocate half of that to your savings. So if you have a $5 expense that you turn into a $2.50 expense, put a twenty five into the extra savings that month, that little tiny bit, that little tiny bit. But if you make it a habit, see so if you do something 50 times, it becomes a lifelong habit. You actually have to try to break it to stop doing it. So imagine a lifetime of doing this. Every time you've saved money, you've saved, You've taken half of what you've saved and you put it away so you can't spend it on something else. So if I want more extra money to spend on other things, I have to find more places to do it, therefore I'll have more, but I'm also saving more. It's a really simple habit to get into. Create additional income for yourself. Whether that's a business, a second job, working more hours, I don't care what it is, especially you guys that are under 30. If, when, I was, when I was in my 20s, I, honest to God, had two jobs. One was an absolute full-time job, and the other one was a part-time job where I worked almost full-time hours in. And when I eventually left the part-time job, it created a, an opportunity in the job I was contracting at, where it, I just went, and what I was doing as a second job became my only job, but I was working just as many hours as when I had two. They were just all in one, so I made some freaking overtime. And that was a major leap in income by working the same amount of hours. But had I not been willing to work 40 hours at one job and 30 at another, I would never have the opportunity to work 70 at the one I was working 30 at. 70 hours sucks. Yes, it does, but it was a flippant opportunity. It was an opportunity when I was in my mid-20s and I had a kid... That was 8 years old and I was trying to figure out how to take care of like a father. I'd never done that before in my life. I didn't like it, but I flipped and did it. And a lot of you guys that are under 30, get that shit through your head right now. Get that shit through your head. I don't want to hear any single one of you talk about, I don't want to drive that far. Tough shit. I spent half my life driving to places I didn't want to go to make it. So I could figure out how to stop doing it. And if you're going to be an employee, then that's what you're going to flip and do. And if you don't like that, you better figure out how to run a business. And then you're going to work even harder, because it's for you. And you're going to be starving a lot more until you figure it out. But if you don't have that in you, screw off on this show. Turn it off right now. Don't listen anymore. You know? If you're a bit older and you've got your shit together, and you did this already, you can forget about what I just said. But if you're a young person and you don't like what you're hearing right now, screw it. You're not ready. You're not ready. You're not ready. Get out and clean pools. You know, get out and pick up dog shit. There's a listener in this audience that's got a kid that's saving enough money to pay full-on for college if she decides to go, or I don't know if it's a girl or a boy, by picking up shit, by picking up dog shit. If a freaking kid, without, they ain't even old enough yet to have a driver's license, can make money picking up shit, you have no excuse. Make money, find a job, create a business, go tend bar, wait tables. I don't give a shit what it is. Pick up aluminum cans. Volunteer somewhere to the point where they say, hey, would you like a job? My wife got a job that way. When she didn't know what she wanted to do, she volunteered at the Salvation Army. In two months they offered her a job, with benefits, by the way. Wasn't the greatest paying job, but she wasn't doing anything anyway. She wasn't even trying. If you, if you say you're trying and you can't find anything, what's your excuse? Sorry to get wired up, but man, guys, this is what I'm trying to say. I look around, and everything I look at, I see an opportunity to create an income. Everything. There's nothing I look at and go, there's no way to make an income out of that. I literally, it's like I don't even have time to do all this shit. And I'm not greedy enough to want to do it all. I've got my thing. But when I hear people going, I can't, you don't know, it's too hard. I'm like, open your eyes and your mind. That's why I started out with your financial IQ. Because all of a sudden you'll start thinking, oh, I understand leverage now. This is where leverage applies to this situation. Let's go leverage it and make some money. Next, I said it already, but I'm going to say it again. Save money, save money, save money, save money. Does it mean be cheap, it means keep putting piles of money away in different piles. Cash on hand. Like, get a firebox, some cash in the house, hidden, swirled away. Cash in the bank. Plain old bank savings accounts. CDs, bonds. I don't care what. Save money. Save, 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 save. One day you'll, you'll have enough to be able to invest in it. And if you pay off debt and save money, you're going to have surplus money. I can't tell you how many people that I've heard from listening to this show, from very early on, they paid off their debt and just started saving money. And eventually emailed me and go, I got 50000 bucks. I, I think I need to figure out how to invest it now. And my response mostly was, you know what you should do? Do whatever you just did again. It'll go faster because you don't have to pay the debt off first this time. You'll have $100,000. And you'll get to $100,000 faster doing that than by investing that $50,000 and putting it at risk. And by then, you'll have enough value in what you've done that you'll make smart decisions about your investing. So go do it. I didn't pick 100000 because it's a number that I think people should do. Because what I did is I take a person like that that got $50,000 ahead in four years that started out with debt. And I know they can get to a hundred in less than four. And I know they're not going to double their money in four years in this freaking stock market. So it's tailored advice to the individual. This is what happens when you get passionate about doing this. This is what happens when you take this shit seriously because it's your life that you're dealing with and you freaking finally understand that. Maybe it takes some redneck like me to tell you that but this is the truth. This is your life. They don't teach you this shit in school. They don't teach you this shit in college. Your financial advisor doesn't know jack shit about what I'm telling you. They never will. It doesn't fit the model because it serves you instead of the collective freaking corporate apparatus that you think this way. Save money, save money, save money. When you think you've saved enough, save $1 more. Be like Walter Payton. What the hell could this have to do with Walter Payton? They asked Walter Payton one time, what led to a career with so many yards rushing? And he said, the simple thing is I always closed. I always closed my runs. If I could get one more inch, one more foot, one more centimeter every single run... That's what I did. I closed hard every single time. And the accumulation of that over a career is what made the difference. It's that simple. It's never easy. It's always simple. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Simple just means that you can do it. You can do it. Become a landowner on some level. Now, this is, you have to find your timing for this. If you're dead broke 24, you got a huge student loan hanging over your head. It's probably not time to buy a house and you're probably not going to get a loan to buy one. Okay? But I believe that there's no more true wealth than land ownership in our society today. And if you and you got to buy smart. But I'm going to tell you that we made tens of thousands of dollars on every home we ever bought and sold. Every single one. We never bought expensive homes. Nothing we've ever purchased looks like an expensive home. This is the most expensive home I've ever purchased in my life. I paid $200,000 for it. There are houses down the road from me that are $500,000 houses. The people that live in those houses have annual incomes that are less than mine. I know it. Intrinsically. I haven't gone down there and asked them, but I know I know the kinds of jobs people have around here and what they do, and I know what my income is and what their income is. I know how many people live in houses like that, and I know there's nowhere near enough jobs that pay enough money that all those people make more than me. That's why we've always made money. We've always bought the house for the opportunity, for the lifestyle it would give us, and if we left it, what we could make on it. We think that way. We think that way. The house we bought in Pennsylvania... I had a really good income, over $100,000 a year. And this is uh, almost 20 years ago now, right? 18 years ago, 16 years ago. Bought it for $137,000. Real estate agent could not believe our budget was so low when he understood what our income was. Like, why won't you just just shut up and find me a house? We sold it three years later for $195,000 and the buyer waived the inspection in order for us to take their offer before somebody else made an offer we had $15,000 into improvements into the house actual cash outlay 15 grand we made more money on that one transaction than a lot of people make their entire lives you know as an annual income and when you sell personal real estate unless something's changed Right, and it may have because I haven't sold a house now for over three years the IRS says you can on personal real estate make up to half a million dollars in your life and not pay any tax on it so it's tax free money it's like an investor where you have to roll it over as a commercial property it's personal property and we turned around after we sold that house we came down to Texas and we bought a house for $120,000 we didn't go up in house price but we went up in house a bit because it cost less we use geographic arbitrage, so much so that I had to write a letter to the mortgage company to explain why we were buying a less expensive house. This is how you have to think about land ownership so and what you can do with the land and the property to increase its value without cr- increasing the tax assessment. That's so why I like buying places where I don't need a permit to do things because then they don't even know I did it, especially if it's on the inside, so they can't increase the assessment based on that, keep my taxes down. And if people would say, you don't own your house, and you don't own your land, because you have to pay tax on it, and if you... Shut up! Shut up! Shut the hell up! That is the stupidest objection I've ever heard. I'm sorry if it offends you. Because the reality is you're paying to live somewhere, that person has taxes on that piece of property, and they are putting it right... Re- you're paying my taxes if you live in my property as a renter. So you could either pay someone else's taxes for them, or you could pay your own taxes for yourself. I'm not saying everybody should buy right now. I'm not saying everybody even should buy. There are people that it actually make sense to break this piece of advice from me. But overall, I think the majority of people are better off owning a piece of land. And get the damn thing paid off. Don't take 30 years to do it. Don't take 30. We're not paying ours off at 5 or nothing, but we're not taking 30 either. Because once that's free and clear paid for, that tax bill seems awful low compared to the house that you're living in. And real estate tends to appreciate, not always, but over time, it tends to appreciate. And most people that are sitting in a house that's 15 years old, if you knew what their mortgage payment was compared to what you're paying for rent, it would strike you sideways hard. It, it really would. My father-in-law, before we had to move him out of his house and put him in uh, uh, uh elder care and memory care because of his dementia, his house payment, $226.00. Two hundred and twenty six dollars. Still had a mortgage, two hundred and twenty six dollars. His house sold for a little over a hundred thousand dollars. And we had a cash buyer on it. And we used that money to keep him in this care facility for a little bit over another year, we can do that for him. So that was wealth saved up. But you can't you can't rent a freaking crap box in Dallas Fort Worth right now four hundred, three hundred dollars a month. It's all but impossible. When I was young, before I met Dorothy, I was living in a very, very affordable apartment complex. A little bit unsafe, honestly, because I, I, I pushed the, the rent down as low as I could. I was paying 370 a month before I met Dorothy for an apartment in a kind of bad area of Grand Prairie. And that was over 20 years ago. He was paying under 300 for a house with a mortgage. The numbers almost always work out. Now, there's stupid places to buy property. There's, we watch these shows like uh, Flip or Flop or whatever. And these houses in California, three-bedroom, one-bath, 1,100 square feet. They're buying it as a piece of shit for 425. They fix it up and sell it for $500,000. And I think these people are insane. And I don't know why any of you people live in places like that. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. But if you buy smart, it's the best investment you'll ever make in your life. And if you buy smart and improve it, if you do have to move, it'll put more money in your pocket than almost anything else you'll do individually. But you've got to do it smart, and you got to think about it. I also believe we should put money into gold and silver. I believe that over your life, and I, this is what I this is where i I, I got to caveat some things. I think 5 to 10% of your net wealth should end up in silver over your lifetime. That means if you've never bought silver in your life, okay, and you have a net worth right now of $200,000, that does not mean go take $20,000 and buy silver and gold and get caught up. I believe silver and gold are best bought at, at lows in the market, over time, dollar cost averaging, one of the few you know, uh, things that your financial advisor will tell you that actually does work out is dollar cost averaging if you apply it properly. And certainly silver and gold are a good place to apply it, though they never tell you to apply it there. They, most financial advisors I know have a very dismal gold, uh, view of silver and gold. And you know why? It's because they don't make any money on it. They don't understand what it even is. It's a wealth assurance program. It is an anchor point of wealth that if things go really haywire, you know it's always there. It is also the most anonymous form of wealth that you can have. It's easily exchangeable for cash or goods, and it can be done quietly and independently. And once you have it as physical metal, and you don't like put a big sign up that says you have it, or do something really stupid like put it in an IRA, IRA, physical metal IRAs are the dumbest thing ever invented. Let's take the most anonymous form of wealth known to man, The only advantage is really that it is an anonymous form of wealth. And let's make it not anonymous anymore. That's what a physical metal IRA is. You want to trade silver and gold inside a retirement account, use an ETF. That's what they're for. If you don't hold it, you don't own it. Well, you don't hold it when it's in your IRA. Yes, I know we even had a show about how to do it, but it was only because people really wanted to know. I'm like, if you want to know, we'll tell you. But in the end, IRAs are not the place for your physical metal. A safe is. A safe deposit box is. A safe and a deposit box are. A safe, a second safe, and a safe deposit box are. All in three different locations. Even if they're at one location, split up at that location, okay? Silver and gold, 5 to 10% of your net wealth. And remember, how I define net wealth, it's not just your cash, it's your total value. If we sold everything you owned, paid off all your debt, with that, whatever's left over, that's your net wealth. So you have a paid for house and it's a $200,000 house. That's $200,000 worth of net wealth. So that's another 20 grand that should end up in silver and gold over time. Actually, 10 to 20 grand. And I'm, I say 5 to 10 to give people a little bit more leniency. I'm a 5% guy personally. I don't know if I've ever said that before, but I, I tend toward the bottom end of that. It is a piece, a very small piece, but another arrow in the quiver. I also believe at this point, people should be putting some money into Bitcoin. I think that Bitcoin's going to be around for a long time, and I think it can only go in one direction, up, because it's designed that way. And there's only so much of it that will ever exist. And I also do think this is your scratch-off lottery ticket money, okay? If you play scratch-off lotteries, you are a dumbass, and you shouldn't do it, because all you're going to do is lose money. I you, you, you mean, yes, somebody could win, but you could also, you know, walk outside get hit by a car, not really be hurt that bad, turns out to be a millionaire, feels bad, writes you a check for half a million dollars. It could happen, but don't bet your life on it. But you have to view Bitcoin money today kind of like scratch-off lottery money, right? Like, it probably will work, but it could possibly just blow up somehow. So I'm not going to put the college fund in there. I'm not going to keep my cash reserves for my business in there. I'm not going to do that. But I think especially if you have a small business and you can take Bitcoin, and you can make $1,000 worth of Bitcoin or $2,000 worth of Bitcoin a year in return for a service-based product that you don't really have any money in, and it just kind of is there, that's a great way to do things. You know, if you are have your own little small web hosting company, and you take Bitcoin for that, the people that pay in Bitcoin are a small portion of your customers, I guarantee you. Just let it be. That's kind of the best way, and then the other way is to actively buy it you know, maybe buy a couple hundred dollars a quarter or something like that. A person I know who's very astute financially, I won't name them because I don't know if they want this on the air publicly, very, very astute financial guy, though, said to me recently that if they were just sitting around with more money than they knew what to do with, they'd have no problem buying $10,000 worth of Bitcoin right now and just setting it aside and seeing it as just a very, very long-term play that will probably, within 10 to 20 years, make them a million dollars. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying that's what one very astute person told me. Okay, And I'm not saying to do it. I'm just saying that it's probably worth then having a little bit of this. Because here's another thing Bitcoin does for you. You have wealth that's literally inaccessible to the government and just about anybody else. There's a lot of different ways to do that. You can learn more about it on your own. But with that and some precious metals, if your whole world ever blows up, at least that's still there. And it's secure, and it's more secure from being sued from anything than anything else I know of. Okay. Um, the next thing is, and I said I would say at least a little bit on this, become a producer of food. And yeah, really. Food is a constant expense. If you can just produce 10% of your own food in a cost-effective way, you cut 10% out of your food bill for your entire life. Think about that, for your entire life. How much money is that? Remember what we're supposed to do? So I've cut my food bill by 10%. If that's 10 bucks, then five of it I get to put in my general life happy fund, and it's income, basically. right? And the other $5 I put in a savings. So I I not only cut the bleed by 10%, I take another 5% and add it to my life savings and my investment funds and everything else that I'm going to build businesses with and create income streams with. Because that's what that money's for. And plant trees. And and, and this has nothing to do with permaculture. I don't care if they're hybrid poplar trees. They grow really big and pretty. Plant, if you Once you become a landowner, plant trees. So buy a piece of land that lends itself to planting, you know, at least a dozen or so trees. Because a tree is an appreciating non-taxed asset. Okay? It really is. I'm sure there's some places where they figured out how to tax your trees. But in general, when you buy a house, half acre lot, and you go put 20 trees on it, your taxes don't go up because of those trees. They go up for other reasons. But ten years down the road, you go sell that property. Those trees add the highest return of investment on anything else you could do to that property, just on a straight financial return. Now, if they happen to feed you with apples, peaches, pears, plums, pecans, walnuts, etc., during that ten years, so much the better. That's back to being a food producer. But we'll plant trees, bushes, shrubs, vines. Permanent plantings that look good and do something useful on land that you either own or control, plant them. A $20 tree that's 10 years old and is healthy probably adds two to $3,000 of value to a house if you sell it just alone. Just the buyer looks at it and goes, wow, look at that big, beautiful tree. Especially when they're comparing it to another house that doesn't have one. Let alone 10 or 15 or 20 trees. Plant trees. When it comes to buying stuff, and I mean stuff that you're going to use in your life, if you have to mow the grass, a lawnmower. I prefer ducks that way; I don't have to spend the gas and the money and the time to mow the lawn. But a lawnmower, a garden hose, okay, a, a shovel, a hoe, a wrench, a ratchet. I'm a guy; I think like this. But women, all you know, a, a, a canner, right? And I use canners too. So I'm you know, but. You can either buy a cheap product multiple times or a good product once. And I believe you buy the best you can afford under the circumstances for the best quality you can get and try to buy things once. I used to buy cheap garden hoses. That's my number one example. You, know, you can buy a 50-foot cheap garden hose for $14.99 on sale at Walmart or Tractor Supply. It's a piece of shit. It'll start kinking on day one. It never makes it a full season. I buy these hoses now. I get them at Home Depot. The best ones I've found so far, they're big, giant, heavy-duty, red, commercial-grade garden hose. They come in 75 feet. I wish they came in 100. They don't. They all come in 70. The ones I'm talking about, I've only seen them in 75 feet. They're expensive. They work better. They never kink. I've had them for three seasons. They're just as good as the day I bought them. All the other hoses, even the good hoses I've bought, you, you you go look at them and there's places where I've had to cut the end off and put and clamp a new end on or whatever and then it doesn't want to work right. It's hard to get on. You have to use a pair of pliers to get it on and off, etc. These red hoses and until I find something better, that's what I'm buying. And that way, yes, I spend the money now, but two seasons, three seasons, ten seasons down the road, damn thing still works. And it's something I use every day, so it's important to me. And and that's how you have to start thinking about everything. We need to stop buying the consumer culture good. It doesn't matter that it's going to wear out in two years. You're going to want a new one anyway. Bullshit. You know what I cook with most of the time? Cast iron. And the cast iron I'm cooking on is more than a hundred years old. And most of the what I've got between fifteen and twenty five dollars a piece into. I go to antique malls. I look for the shittiest stuff I can find. It's the right stuff. Shittiest looking, best stuff. Like old Griswold and stuff like that. I bring it home, I clean it up, I wipe it down, I re-season it, and it's 100 years old, and 100 years from now, assuming whoever gets it from me when I'm dead, it'll still work just as good as it, it'll work better. If it's cared for, it'll work better in another 100, it'll be 200 years old, and it'll work better than the day it was made, and we're going out and buying cheap, friggin' toxic-coated crap from Chinese makers to cook in our kitchens with? You've got to be kidding me. That's just one example of that. The best you can afford for the quality and the purpose. So in this case, I'm actually spending less money than expensive cookware, and I'm getting a better result. So sometimes you spend more, sometimes you spend less, but you buy the best you can afford for the intent and purpose, and you make it an investment. And then you're done with that expense for the rest of your life. Next, become a tinkerer. Become good at solving your own problems. Whether it's fixing stuff, repairing stuff, building stuff. It doesn't mean you always do it either. There's times I make a determination. I need gutters installed. I don't have time. I need it now. I have a guy that will do it for X amount of money. While he's doing that, I'm running my business. Okay, I'm going to pay him. But if I have to, I know how to do it. If I have to, I know how. And if I ever gotten to a point where I have more time than money, I'll go back to doing it myself. You know how to know how to change parts on your car. That could save you thousands of dollars over ten years or more. Especially if you're buying used cars, or you know, like I think a lot of people do well to have a new car and an older car. And whoever drives the shortest distance to work and back, and usually it's the guy that's more capable of dealing with it if it breaks down, drives the older car. You know, I mean, and and, or you, you know, I'll tell you another thing that works out really well for a lot of people. Is you have two newer vehicles and you have an older vehicle. It doesn't get driven that much. But if something goes wrong with one of the other vehicles, it's there. It's redundant. Or a lot of times people don't really have a need for an expensive pickup truck, but they're very handy. So you have your you know mom and dad's car to go to work and back, and you get a truck that's 15, 20 years old, but in good mechanical shape. You learn how to take care of it. And it's always there. And what it can save you in deliveries is worth the cost of the truck many times. Especially some of them. The best time to buy them is when gas goes up. Right now they're getting a little bit more pricey again. But I remember when, when gas was like 4 bucks a, uh, a gallon, I was looking at trucks that were five years old. Good trucks. Extended cabs. You know, half tons. $4,500. 80,000 miles on them. Why? Nobody wanted to drive it. The people that could afford the gas wanted a new one. People that couldn't afford the gas couldn't afford to drive it. You know, couldn't afford to buy a new one and couldn't afford to buy the gas for it. So they were just sitting there rotten. So th- you you, you got to start thinking about how can I make things that cost less do more for me? And many times that's learning and developing skills for yourself. Learn to solve your own problems. You know, I have to eat at work all the time. That costs me money. Well, learn to cook and take food with you. This is a funny story. I've told this before, but I gotta tell this again, because it so fits this. When my wife used to have a job, she would go to work and there was this crappy cafeteria downstairs in the hospital she worked in, and her and the girls that she worked with would go down there for lunch all the time. And usually she would just buy like maybe like a bag of chips or something sometimes to go with it. But usually she would just take her own food down, and since it's not like an actual restaurant where they'll throw you out for this, she just would take her lunch down there and eat with everybody while they would buy the crap food. And I asked her, I said, "Well, what do they spend on garbage?" And she said, "Somewhere between five and ten bucks a day, usually closer to the ten dollars side." By the time they get this and a side at and a drink and everything else, so they're blowing five to ten dollars a day on this food that's literally garbage. And she goes in one day, and what she took for uh, lunch was she made a salad for herself. And I had it had, it had made steak the night before, and she had a beautiful piece of medium-rare sirloin that was gorgeously cooked on the grill, because I cooked it. And she sliced that up, put it on her salad with a little bit of cheese, and the one girl says, Jack must be doing really good if you can afford to eat like that. Now, you know the funny part, don't you? Her lunch, because it was a leftover piece of steak from the night before, a small piece of the steak... And a salad, she probably had two or three bucks into at the most, and most of it was the meat. They're buying crap for seven to ten dollars, and they're envious of what she's eating, and they're making a snide, and it was a snide remark like, "Oh, it must be nice," like that type of remark. Poverty, number one wealth killer that I let off this with the number one wealth killer, poverty consciousness, and they also have the number two, consumer-oriented lifestyle. All kinds of crap and goodies and stuff at home. Always broke, never no money. Can't understand that it's, you could eat steak instead of garbage if you understood basic common sense. Bring your own food to work. Perfect example. Solve your own problems. Become highly skilled at solving your own problems. Seek opportunity everywhere because it is everywhere. Here's an example of this. And it's, it's part of keeping your mind open and your ears open. I just finished the quail aviar. It's not actually finished, but the birds are in it. Yay. All right. So we had some workshops here. And this guy David, who lives pretty close to me, uh, has an aviary, like in his house. It's kind of like in a divider. Like it's the house, then there's the aviary, then it's outside, right? Kind of a cool thing. It looks really, really, really awesome. And he's, I I said to him, Dorothy wants some, like, some little finches in here. Like some pretty little finches flying around. And, uh, he's like, Oh yeah, we have some of those too. And I'm like, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to figure out what, he says, most of them can, you know, handle our climate just fine. They'll be fine in there. You give them a little nest and all that. he says, you know, we, we, we keep them and we have two kinds. We have these society finches for, like, cheap. You can get them for, like, 10 bucks. And then we have these, uh, they're like a rainbow finch, right? And they sell for, like, $100. Like, wow, that's kind of expensive. He goes, no, what you do? You get a couple pairs of those and a couple pairs of these society finches. And then you throw away the society finch eggs and you just don't hatch them or you could sell them for 10 bucks a piece if anybody wants them but they're, they're not a real in demand thing but then they're really broody so you give them the eggs from these pretty finches and you let them rear them and when they're big enough to fly around and all you sell them for 100 dollars a piece you know and maybe you can make 1000 dollars a year you're not walk away from you know walk away from work money there but I'm see, this is the opportun- this is function stacking opportunity. What that does, by running the numbers, buys all the feed for all the quail and all the feed for all the finches for a year with baby finches. Now, yes, I have to invest. They could die. It's probably not the thing you should do as an opportunity if you're just getting started. But what happens is the more opportunities you take, the more opportunities you see, and the more opportunities you can take. And then you get to a point where you actually have to start picking and choosing your opportunities. And that's why you get frustrated when you hear people talking about that they don't have one. That they don't have one. I mean, literally, you could be cleaning pools for a couple hundred dollars worth of chemicals and tools tomorrow morning. And if you just went out and hustled, you could build a book of business cleaning pools. Now would be the time to get started, by the way. Again, I'm frustrated. I try to get my son into this business. I hooked him up. I gave him everything he needed. He's not doing jack shit with it. Because right, he's not motivated. He's just not motivated. And, and there's so many of you guys in his generation that... And I know it's not just how you were brought up, because I know how he was brought up. I know he watched me bust my ass to provide for him his whole life. And he knows that's what it takes. And I'm proud of him in a lot of ways, because he's a damn good father... He stepped up as a father to a, a, you know, a, a son that wasn't his own. They're now having a second baby. He's totally involved. He takes care of his wife. He does go to work every day. He doesn't miss work. He doesn't screw up work. He's got loyalty. I mean, but he doesn't have this fire that it takes to actually have a little bit more. And that's what so many people are lacking. I can only be so hard on him on it when I realized that like 90% of America is just like that. If you want what the 10% of us have, you got to find it. you got to get some fire and you got to see these opportunities. And you got to seize them. I mean, there's so much opportunity out there, guys. Anybody that wants to could be making a few bucks with microgreens like that. Now, if everybody did it, it would ruin the market. But you know what? Everybody ain't going to do it. Everybody ain't going to do it. So, so you might as well. Next. Kind of back to when we talk about solving your own problems. Become a great cook. Learn to cook inexpensive, fabulous food. You know, I talk a lot about meat, but we eat a lot of vegetables too, right? A lot of lot of things that you can add to meat that are like like sometimes we make food like the the veg. Even though I I always want meat, right? The vegetables actually taste better, right? They they go with it, enhance the meat. Like so, learn to cook inexpensively and really really great. You'll spend so much less money. Just by your leftovers, you'll save, you'll save money. You know? So, so that's another one. Invest it only in what you understand and only when it makes sense. People always want to be told what to invest in. If you need to be told what to invest in, you probably shouldn't be investing in it. Seriously. Because that means by the very concept, you do not understand the investment. You just trust the advisor. Why are you buying a stock? Why are you buying a mutual fund? Because historically it has... No, no. What's in it? What's the current trends? What's the current conditions? What's, what's the best case scenario on return? What's the worst case scenario on losses over the next year? Well, you never know. Bullshit. Bullshit. If you know what you're doing, you know. And that doesn't mean you know all those, but you at least understand the investment enough to make your advisor give you answers or realize you have a dumbass advisor and you need a new one. Understand your investments. Understand when somebody says to you, hey, when you do have some money, and they say, I'm starting a business, and they want you to go in with them as a partner and loan them some money, like venture debt or something like that, or even be a partner, but they want you to put money in, or they want you to put time in. Understand the investment. Understand it. Even if you're not putting cash in, if you're putting sweat equity in, you better understand it. You better understand the potential returns, the potential risks, the potential losses. You better have an understanding of the other person, every investment. You buy a house, understand it. When was it built? What's the current market like? What was the worst thing to happen in that market in the last 10 years? What was the best? What is available everywhere else? Remember how I've always said when we sell a house, we want to be 1% better than everybody else? Right? And a lot of that's like this appearance. When I buy a house, I try to buy a house that all the fundamentals are 10% better than everybody else's, but the appearance is 10% worse than everybody else's. That's undervalue that I can capitalize on. That's understanding an investment. That's how you buy a stock. You buy a stock that's been driven down due to bad press, but has solid underlying fundamentals. It has the right price-to-earnings ratio. What's that? Put that on your list of shit to learn. What is a PE ratio? Why does it matter? What's good? What's bad about it? You know, when it's this number, it's it's good. This is bad. Who thinks so? Do you agree? Right? Financial literacy. But only invest in what you understand, and only do it when it makes sense. I fully understand how Ford Motor Company does business but it's not always a good time to buy that stock just because I understand it. Okay, So just because you understand it doesn't mean invest in it. You understand it and the timing and the opportunity is right. Then you make an investment. Please get out of the way of telegraphed punches. Yes, time the market. Okay, I am not a trader. I'm not John Pugliano. He's much better at what he does than I am. He really is. He's a guy that's timing things much more frequently than me. Okay, this is an opportunity to buy now. That's why he's good at what he does. That's why he makes a good living doing what he does. He's another guy that reminds me of people like uh, Carl Denninger, uh, Mike Gazer. These guys, are they know when to trade and how to trade at, at frequency. But the average dumbass, if they were smart enough, would have known in 2008 to get out of the stock market. Hell, I did, and I told everybody listening to this show too. Last year Sucked. Sucked. To just be sitting in the next... It was a big risk for a little loss. It could have been a big risk for a big loss. But there was no gain. And we told you there was no gain. It was telegraphed. You could look at it. You could see it. It was obvious. At least protect your investments during the obvious downturns or sideways turns. Just get out of the way. And eventually... What you'll do is you'll see if you get out of the way when things are going to be bad and you wait, you will see an opportunity. You will see an opportunity. I mentioned Ford because it was a good buy for me at one time. When all the other car companies, when Chrysler and Chevy got a bailout and it drove down the big three in price, Ford was under $2 a share. And they said when the terms of the different bailouts came out, we don't want it. We're going to be okay. I bought quite a bit of Ford. You can go back and look at what happened. It was a good decision. No, I don't own that stock now. Okay? That's understanding the investment. That's getting out of the way of telegraph punches. And that's paying attention and watching for the opportunity. If you tune into the show expecting me to say, go do this with your money, I just Told you what to do with your money, but I'm relying on you to become financially astute enough, become a grown-up, to treat your money like it's important to you. And this is the thing. People want to go get an advisor to take care of your money. Why would you ever think that your money would be as important to me as your money should be as to you? Really think about when you take and you hand an advisor the rights to determine how your money gets invested and just say, just do it. What you're assuming is to that person, your money is as important to them as it is to you. It's probably not. There's people that it is. There's people that are really good at what they do. In general, most people asking questions like, where should I put my money? And they're sitting on $50,000. Don't qualify to work with them. You're not an accredited investor. That means you don't have enough money to qualify for the good advisors. That's not arrogance. That's the law. Right? That's the law. Or even where it's legal, it's the people that are that good, it's not worth their time to try to manage $50,000 for one client. They can't do enough with it, and they know they can't. So they, they righteously turn down your business and say, keep investing, and when you're ready, I'll be here. Find me an Edwards Jones advisor that will tell you that when you have $50,000. Or an American Express, or... You know, anybody, any one of these, you know, consumer level guys. No, they'll sign you up like that because they're starving to death. All those guys are starving to death and they want to tell you how to invest your money. (sighs) I'm adding one. I'm going to add one today that I've I've given before, but it's not my official list. Never take advice from anybody about anything unless they're doing better than you in that thing. (laughs) So if you have $50,000 and you got a broke-ass guy that's about to starve to death for a financial advisor, you shouldn't be taking his advice about money because you know more than he does by the fact that you have 50000 bucks and he doesn't. Does that make sense? See, so I learned this from my dad. I had an uncle named Steph, and he was a great uncle. I don't mean he was a good uncle. I mean he was my great uncle, right? Um, and he knew a lot about money. He was a multimillionaire in his 60s. It was kind of like a blue collar engineer guy, right? He never really you know uh had his own business, he was never really super high paid he was just smart about saving his money and when I tell you the next thing you'll you'll realize how smart he was about saving and protecting his money. He had been married i think like five times and divorced five times he was you know by this point he was uh living as an old bachelor by himself. And uh, what well, my dad said is, if he ever tells you what to do with your money, you should listen to him. Because he knows what to do with money. If he gives you about advice about women, <laughs> you probably shouldn't listen to him. He has a bad track record there. We take so much advice from people that have terrible track records for the advice that they give. Because we're taught to, we're trained to, we're conditioned to. They have a title, financial advisor. They have a title, teacher. They have a title, doctor. This applies to more things than just economics. Next, last one, pay off all your debt as soon as possible. I know I said it before, and I'll say it again. I'll keep saying it. Uh, let me explain to you the problem we have with people that think they're investing and saving for the future while they still have debt that's continuing to grow. If, if you are paying down debt, and at the same time you're paying down debt, you're still taking some of the money that you could be applying to debt and putting a savings away, so that if something goes wrong, you can keep servicing the debt and you don't have to go back into debt to fix it. That makes sense and it's kind of like you have a boat with a hole in it and you're bailing water out at like a gallon, you know, a gallon every five seconds and the water is coming in at like uh, a quarter gallon every five seconds and you're bailing your ass off for a couple of minutes and then you work on the hole and then you bail your ass off for a couple of minutes and you work on the hole. Eventually you're going to get the hole fixed and you can bail fast enough to keep the boat floating. Okay? If if you have paid off all your debt and now you're just savings. It's like the boat was leaking and now you're bailing and eventually you'll you'll get rid of it all and the boat's fixed and you're good to go. Okay? And that's how that that's how it is like so you've you've stopped growing the debt. It's not getting any bigger anymore. You still have to get rid of it. But now you can bail and stop worrying about the hole. That's how you get out of debt. What we have a lot of people doing is they're continuing to increase their debt. They're making minimum payments. They're still adding a little bit to it here and there and not really worried about it. And it's you know a debt that's going to run 30 years or more. And what they're literally doing is they're bailing the boat at a gallon every five seconds. But like 1.1 gallons of water is coming in the boat. If that's going on, you got to bail like your life depends on it because your boat's sinking, and you have got to stop the leak. You at least got to slow it down, and eventually you got to plug it. And you got to focus on the leak over the bailing. And there's so many people that they're doing the exact opposite. All their savings is is like they're they're, they're bailing, but yet the boat's just leaking and leaking and leaking faster. And they're going to get to a point in their life where they're going to have the debt. And they think they have these savings, but when you put the two together, they're negative. And and that's what happens when you don't pay off debt. It's cancer, guys. It's cancer. Final thoughts today. Old George Carlin bit. Most of you have heard it. If not, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can hear the whole thing. I'm not going to play it on the air today. But the game is rigged. It's a big club. And you are not in the club. And... When Carlin said that, and those of you who heard the bit know, it was from a different angle that I'm giving it to you today. It's basically that, you know, you can vote for people, but, you know, it's not going to matter. You're still getting somebody from the club that you're not in, and they're not going to put you in the club. They threw you overboard years ago. You know, they don't care about you. They don't care about you at all. They feel like they own you, and that's all true. But here's the other side of it. Since it's their club and you're not in it, and since they control the education system, since they control. The commercial reality in, in society, the advertising, the products, the services, the mega corporations, they control everything. They've designed a life for you that is based on either being a parasite or a cog in the machine. You never get to operate the machine. So the parasite or the whole group of society that they know is going to live on government assistance their whole lives, they're never really going to accomplish anything, they're never really going to do anything, and they're just fine with you being a parasite, because they know you'll never have much, you're no threat to them whatsoever, but you look like a threat to the people that are the cogs. So they can use you. They'll steal from the producers and give to you just enough so you survive. You'll throw money back into their consumer economy, because you really don't understand money if you're in that group. And you can live in projects or Section 8 or whatever for the rest of your life, and they don't really care. And that's one option. The other option is you become productive. But if you follow their model of productivity, you every co- kid goes to college, you get a degree, you get debt, you get a car, you get debt, you get a house, you get debt, you get credit cards, you get debt. You live in, a, in an HOA community, and you do exactly what you're supposed to do. You show up and you vote. You join the PTA. You send your kids to government schools. And you're a good American. You pick a D or an R, and you stand with your D or your R, right? You're a Democrat or Republican. You wave the flag. You support their wars. Even if you're on the D or the R, somehow you still end up supporting their wars. You believe all their lies, and you live your whole life as a frickin' battery in the Matrix. That's your other choice, if you follow their rules. Because they made the rules, they run the club, the club created the system, And you're not allowed into their piece of it. So if you if you do it their way, there's only one result that you can end up with. They own you. This is the good news. You are not a battery. You are a human being. And you can do the things and more that I talked about today. You can do those things. You can change the dynamic. You can think independently. You don't have to follow the plan of the big club that you're not in. And why would you? Because what you're doing then is it's like being a group of a a thousand people, and you got a hundred people that are in charge. So you got 1,100 people. And those hundred people tell you all the ways you're supposed to live, and they, they profit from your activity. But they live in a different neighborhood that you're not allowed to go into, and you trust them. That's how most Americans are living their life today. That's why they lose financially, that's why they lose economically. And and on top of it all, they have a poverty consciousness coupled with a consumer-driven mentality. If you can change yourself out of a poverty consciousness and you can make sure you're not living a consumer-driven life, you actually think about what you buy, you understand what you buy, and you can seek opportunities and capitalize on them and save your money. Just those five things. If you just do that, you'll be ahead of most people. You really will. You want it to be complicated. You want it to be hard. You want it to be something special. You wanted me to tell you what to do exactly where to put your money today. Because you want a band-aid solution to a problem that's a gangrenous wound. you got to stand up and own it. you got to take charge of it. This is the philosophy to think from. And remember, the people that design the system are the same people that play Monopoly for real. They spend money like water. The more they spend, the more they make. They never lose. They never face consequences. They're always breaking the law. Occasionally they have to go to jail. But they get out for a very small fee, and they keep doing what they're doing. And they're the one that set the rules for you. Break the effing rules, folks. Design your own life. Stop letting other people design a life for you. With that, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.